we now understand that the manifestation of inflammation in the brain might be very different from what it looks like when it's in, let's say, a joint or, you know, when it's in your GI tract in that inflammation in the brain is correlated with things like you said, migraine headaches, but also things like depression and cognitive decline. And these tend to be things, especially as it relates to cognition and our mood that we put into another box as though it's somehow independent from what's happening in the body, what's independent from what's happening in the immune system. And I've really tried to get people to appreciate that it's the same biological systems throughout the body. Neuroscience, neurology, longevity, and beyond. Learn everything you need to know from the best physicians and experts in the world. The Neuro Experience Podcast is a platform to help you understand what the brain is and how it shapes every part of our lives. Every episode comes to you from highly credible sources. I'm Louisa Nicola, medical neuroscientist from Australia, living in New York City. Come and take a neuro experience with me. Well, hello, everybody. It's Louisa Nicola, and welcome to all of our new listeners, especially those who have followed me from Clubhouse. I'm very excited to uh, introduce you to a whole new community. The Neuro Experience podcast started in 2016, and we've built it up to one of the most well-performing podcasts in the area of neurology, neuroscience, and longevity. So, Myself, along with some of our esteemed guests, bring you the latest insights uh, in neurology, longevity, and neuroscience. Um, And we do this in a very formal way using only the latest in science. So everything is very well curated and documented. And what I'm going to be presenting you with today is a mashup of all of the previous episodes I've done this week on Clubhouse. I'm very excited to announce that we now have, in beta version, a paid membership site. So for all of you who have been avid listeners and who have been following me, know that I don't do advertisements. I don't, um, you know, I think it's very counterintuitive to advertise a product that I don't believe in and that I don't really use. I'll only partner and advertise products if I truly believe in them and if they are uh, keeping with the theme of neuroscience. Now, in saying that, in order for me to give the best value to everybody, It would mean the absolute world to me. If you go to the Neuro Athletics website, we will put everything below um, in the footnotes. But if you go to our website and consider joining for a very small fee of $19 every single month, we'll be bringing to you episodes along with private Q&As where you'll have the ability to talk with myself and my team on a monthly basis, a live Q&A just for our members. Now, as I said, we are only in beta stage. So the actual website and fully functioning membership site will be live in the next four to six weeks. But please consider doing that if you like the episodes and you want more information around longevity and especially sleep. I'm doing a fantastic sleep series on uh, on Clubhouse, which we'll be putting up on the website too. Without further delay, let's get into the episode. We've got Louisa, who's a neuroscientist. She works with athletes. 
Um, she has so much insights every show on sleep and I get a lot of messages on can these be recorded and we're going to try and work towards that as well so yeah um, welcome and we're going to kind of kick this off today it's going to focus on performance athletes the importance of sleep you know the extra one percent people get or the five percent gains you get from you know optimizing your sleep but even more generally to the wider population of why sleep so important so that's where we'll start so um, a sleep is kind of one of the companies I've been kind of been on my radar for um, a few years now, probably the last two years. Um, and I was just a bit annoyed that it wasn't available in the UK because I'm, I mean, I use the Aura Ring, I use Whoop, I use so many devices. But um, when it comes to sleep, uh, A Sleep is, is a company with a goal of sleep fitness, which I'm pretty interested in how they expand. So essentially, very kindly, they provided us a discount code as well, HBC, so you get $100 off any of the products. Um, um, and I've dropped that in the domain I'm using, HBC.show. So if you follow along on HBC.show, you can kind of ask questions there as we go along we might get quite technical so if you're unsure i'll keep an eye on the chat and, and see if we can bring people up as well so how we're going to do this is we will be kind of i'm going to ask louisa a few questions set the scene Matthew will be here as well and then we kind of open up to a q a we try and keep this to an hour um so yeah be patient we will bring you up on stage for questions but you can also ask in the chat and that's where you have the code you can check out a sleep a really reputable company backed by some of the biggest investors including what i heard was naval a coastal adventure some of some of, some of the companies, some of the VCs that I'm fans of as well. So yeah, let's kick off. Luisa and Matteo, welcome. So today we'll be focusing on the science of sleep and performance. So um, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Eight Sleep. So we develop a technology that uh, enhances your sleep performance. And at the same time, uh, seamlessly, we can track everything about your heart rate, respiration, and sleep quality. Our vision is about uh, sleep compression. So what if you could sleep only six hours and get rest, uh, more rest than when you were sleeping eight hours? And second is about uh, saving your life. So we have so much space in, in the bed that we want to introduce uh, any sort of technology and sensor that is existing on the world to monitor your health seamlessly for you. So uh, let me give a, a brief background, I think, on sleep when it comes to sleep and elite athleticism. And just for everybody in the audience, uh, I get asked a lot, well, do we have to really be monitoring our sleep and optimizing our sleep like this if we aren't elite athletes? And my answer is always yes. If you want to down-regulate some of the genes that are responsible for tumor growth and up-regulate some of the immunity genes that are responsible for fighting off infections and even uh, certain viruses, then yes, every Everyone should be treating themselves like an elite athlete when it comes to sleep. Uh, so sleep is probably the greatest legal performance enhancing drug that very few athletes are abusing, I believe. It affects everything, like Sahib said, from growth hormone levels, um, muscle repair during our deep stages of sleep. Um, it affects our immune function and chronic loss can be associated with a higher susceptibility, like I said, of these infections. Just as a brief overview of some of the athletes who are adopting a strict sleep schedule. Roger Federer claims to sleep around 12 hours. Uh, he does this with, I think, about 10 hours at night and about a two-hour nap during the day. Um, LeBron James sleeps 12 hours as well. Usain Bolt, the famous sprinter, sleeps anywhere between nine and nine and a half and 10 hours a night. He takes naps strategically during the day. So we all know the power of sleep and why they use it. So sleep obviously affects things like a glucose metabolism, 
metabolism and our hormone regulation of appetite, which we mentioned earlier, uh, leptin, ghrelin levels can be impacted by insufficient sleep chronically, even in healthy um, healthy adults. <laughs> there is a really great correlation. A lot of work that's been got that's been done between the relationship between sleep deprivation and testosterone levels. Testosterone levels uh, decrease um, if you've had just one week of insufficient sleep. So let's move on to some of the research because I find this fascinating. So the American Academy of Sleep Medicine did a study back in 2017 and they grabbed a, a group of healthy elite athletes from Major League Baseball. And what they showed was they showed results show that after five nights of sleep extension, so they got all of these Major League Baseball players to sleep around four hours more, three to four hours more than what they're usually sleeping. And they demonstrated, the results demonstrated a 13% improvement on a cognitive processing speed test by reacting 122 milliseconds faster. That's the first thing. The second thing is they responded 66 milliseconds faster on a test of selective attention when confronted with distractions. This is absolutely incredible because especially from my standpoint, what, you know, when I get hired or when I go and consult for teams and, and athletes, they're always saying to me, Louisa, how can you get a LeBron better than what he is? Even though when you're, when you're the best in the world, how can you decrease their reaction time, improve their information processing speed and improve their visual acuity by 0.3 of a second? And it can be done. Obviously, we have to use neuroimaging to uh, to do this. However, if these, you know, if, if the results from this study are showing that um, a, a decrease in 400 and uh, 400 milliseconds, then that is absolutely huge, Sahib. That is, you know, that's really that's really shows and benchmarks that we can be improving not just our lives but our performance by enhancing our sleep function. I'm hoping you're all still with us. That was a fantastic episode I did with Matteo and Sohei. Matteo is the CEO and co-founder of Eight Sleep. So we're going to move on now um, to my next episode I did with Dr. Austin Perlmutter. And this episode features areas around brain inflammation, brain toxicity, how to eliminate neural inflammation, and basically a background on what it is. This is, of course, just a small snippet of the episode. The full episode will be available on the membership site. Let's go. Now, there is some nuance to that, and we'll talk about the blood-brain barrier and how it used to be thought that there was this hard and fast rule that only certain things got into the brain, therefore there wasn't as much communication with what was happening in the rest of the body. But, you know, to fast forward a long way, that's not the case. What happens in the rest of the body reaches the brain through a variety of different channels and it influences everything from whether you're having a headache to your mood to your cognitive ability. So really good point, Louisa. I really love that you just brought up the blood brain barrier, the BBB. And, um, guys, this is something that another thing that we hear about often too. So like I said earlier, chronic inflammation, it's too much inflammation over a given period of time. Is It's a key element of the aging process, yes, and it really drives many age-related diseases and conditions. But here's the relationship between what Austin just said and inflammation. So the blood-brain barrier is critical 
to healthy brain function. Okay, we know that it and enables us to bring things in and bring and stop things from going in to the brain. But chronic systemic inflammation causes changes and a disruption, if you will, in the blood-brain barrier. And what happens then is when we have a disruption in our blood-brain barrier, we then allow toxins to allow toxic, I would say, molecules to enter the brain, for example. And we're looking at this. Um, this is a study that I saw in rodent models um, when it came to traumatic brain injury. What happens is rodent models who have got a TBI demonstrate that loss of their blood-brain barrier following a TBI allows things like, is it albumin? It's a type of protein that enters the brain from a TBI. So this in turn activates um, growth factor and then obviously causes, uh, leads to compromises and causes cognitive dysfunction. So the reason why we're really speaking about this is because we do have this protective layer that, uh, you know, disables toxins from coming into our brain, the blood-brain barrier. However, when we have chronic inflammation, there, there is a disruption in that pathway, and that's why chronic inflammation is bad. So why don't we, um, why don't we start with the first thing? You know, in, any, any findings that you have, uh, Austin, on your end for lifestyle factors, if you will, or anything that you want to add that increases our chances of, um, of having chronic inflammation, chronic neural inflammation? Sure. And let's make a, a distinction here. When we talk about inflammation as a whole, uh, we're usually talking about inflammation in the bloodstream. I mean, you could be talking about inflammation in an organ if you're being specific. So if you say, for example, that person has a rash, they may have inflammation on their skin. And sometimes that inflammation will be significant enough that it gets into the bloodstream. And you could say they have systemic inflammation or just generally inflammation. Um, you know, similarly, uh, a person might have inflammation in a specific organ inside the body. So you could have in theory like gut inflammation, um, which you would commonly see in certain inflammatory bowel diseases. But when we're talking about brain inflammation, one of the points that I want to make is that it's very hard to actually measure that. So for the most part, um, what we discuss is that you can look at inflammation in the rest of the body as a surrogate for what might be going on in the brain. So for the most part, when you're looking at lifestyle interventions to help lower inflammation in the brain, those are the exact same lifestyle interventions that are lowering inflammation throughout the rest of the body. And it's interesting in that you can kind of go through sequentially these pathways by which inflammation can be increased and then can reach the brain. Probably the best example is through the gut uh, in that if you have increased inflammation in the gut, that has been found to correlate with worsened brain function. So just as, as kind of general advice as far as what we know, we know that things like sleep, so we always talk about sleep, um, certainly diet, exercise, uh, even things like stress reduction, mindfulness, meditation, and those types of things um, correlate with improved or lowered levels of inflammation and decreased levels of chronic inflammation. And you can kind of get into any sort of level of detail as it relates to any of these pathways. So you can talk about stress as it relates to HPA or hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis activation or overactivation 
and how that over time appears to lead to inflammation in the body and the brain. You can also talk about how something like our metabolism, for example, if you're eating a whole lot of ultra-processed food, can lead to inflammation by way of too much sugar, which can actually glycate or add sugar to proteins in the body and foster inflammation in that way. So in many ways, the conversation about brain inflammation or neuroinflammation is the same conversation about inflammation throughout the body. I do think there are a couple of kind of caveats to that, which make it much more interesting probably the most notable of those being the fact that inflammation in the brain appears to alter our cognition and thinking. So when you think about the fact that in order to prevent inflammation, you have to make certain lifestyle decisions, it's different if you say, well, my foot hurts, I have inflammation in my foot, therefore I'm going to start eating food differently to lower that inflammation. But when the inflammation is in your brain, it may compromise the very ability for you to make those healthier choices. But that's a broad overview, Louisa. Does that touch on some of what you were describing? Absolutely. And I um, you know, I get asked about this often, and it's the relationship between food and inflammation. And I have a theory, and I'm gonna ask you this question. Just before I, I begin this, my question to you, Austin, is would you uh, would you rather um, eat, would you rather consume fried food? Okay, let's just say a bowl of fried chicken and fried fries, <laughs> fries, I should say, or um, a whole bag of sugar, sugar treats. Would you rather consume the bad oils or the sugar? Uh, this is really a big deal. You're putting me on the spot here. Um, my answer for a variety of reasons is I would choose the fried food. Um, and there may be people who would go otherwise on this, but to tell you the truth, here's what I see. The research as far as oxidation, inflammation coming from, uh, basically plant oils, or I should say seed oils, uh, specifically the omega-6 imbalance is not as significant, uh, in practice as what I've actually expected for it to be. There are a lot of mechanistic pathways by which I think that eating fried food is not great for us, but the question would have to be, what is it fried in? Was that oil used multiple times? Because just the idea of of something being fried certainly correlates with a lot of the concerns we'd have for inflammation versus sugar. Because I know firsthand what happens in my body when I eat things that are high in sugar. Because like you, I've experimented with CGMs. And like you, I've been able to correlate some of what's happening there with how I feel. And, you know, I don't eat fried food anyway. But if I you know, if I was to look at my diet, it would primarily be one that avoids added sugars. So eating all of that sugar for me, I know from experience would cause me to be in a much worse overall state of mind as well as physical state. But I'm guessing from your gasp that that is not the choice that you would make. And I'd love to hear why. Okay. Well, this brings in the reason why I asked that is because I'm bringing in this notion of uh, bad fats. Okay. There's this word fat that gets thrown around and I wanted to, that's my first comment when it comes to neural inflammation. Now, why is this whole fat thing so important? Well, that's because we as humans, generally we are fat. I don't mean that where you are fat, but 
at a fundamental level, we are comprised of fat. And at a fundamental level, the organ that we're speaking about tonight is also comprised of fat. Now, when we talk about the brain, there are copious amounts of fat in brain cell membranes and neurons. Now, these fats insulate your brain. They, prote they protect it from shock and help your nervous system to maintain a healthy temperature, if you will. Now, these fats, like all other cellular lipids in your body, comprise of you we get these we can get fats from our diet and they can either be good fats or they can be really really detrimental fats this is why i'm actually really against um going out and eating fries because you just don't know how long the oil has been sitting there for now this is why i'd rather have an entire bag of sugar than contain you know than consume just about any popular fried food on the face of this planet the reason being is that the sugar isn't going to uh, the sugar isn't going to serve as a building block to my body. Yes, I'm going to agree with you. Sugar can spike your blood glucose. It can cause some vascular inflammation, if you will, gastric bloat and cause a surge in your insulin. But at least as soon as you have that sugar, you can drop and do some burpees or you can go for a run or you can have some Ceylon cinnamon to in instantly bring down your sugar levels. You simply can't do that with bad fats. They're going to get incorporated into your cell membranes, whether you're exercise or not. And there is no way to undo the damage. And I think that comes down to, that's where I'm talking about with inflammation, all of these damaged fats, you know, the fact that your body and brain are built from the fats that you eat is not the only reason to be careful with these damaged fats. The other reason is that a diet that includes these types of fats, you know, you're not doing any, yourself any favors, you know, in terms of inflammation. Inflammation, like I said, can be a part of the um, the response to infection and tissue damage. But once it gets to the brain, it causes so many things, such as cognitive decline, um, defects in our functioning, uh, defects in the way that we sleep, um, our ability to process information and make sound decisions. That was the reason behind my 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 question to you, Austin. I like that. And, you know, I think it's such an interesting question for a variety of reasons. And one of the things I'm considering now as the answer I gave is that you're guaranteed to eat if you're eating sugar, it's sugar. And, you know, I think that there are a lot of conversations about good and bad sugar. It's agave, it's fructose, it's sucrose. Um, but if I'm eating sugar, I know I'm getting sugar and I know sugar isn't good for me. If I'm eating fried food, at least I can convince myself that maybe they use, I don't know, some coconut oil or something. And therefore it's not obligatory that I'm guaranteed to get the negative out health outcomes. But I guess if you're saying you're basically going to a fast food restaurant and picking up whatever they've had in the, uh, in the fry tray for the last week or so, such that you're getting all of that oxidized fat and you know that you're getting that, um, then I'm with you. I think that is a, a good call, but really love the question. All right. Why don't we move on? So you and I were discussing this pathway that we were talking about when it comes to how does, um, you know, neural inflammation and free radicals, how does this damage our brain in the long, in the long run? And you mentioned something, you said that there's, um, you've got the part, you've got different pathways. We've got peripheral um, inflammation, which can change our, our brain status and brain, brain inflammatory level via the vagus nerve. But you also mentioned the um, the other types of inflammation, which can go into more of an astrocytes and glial type that can affect our brain. What were you? What do you have to say on that? Yeah. So this gets back to the earlier point, which is basically that 
we talk about inflammation as though it's a kind of one-to-one with what's happening in the rest of the body and with the brain. And some of the mechanisms as to both how the inflammation or the immune response gets to the brain, as well as what happens within the brain once that immune response reaches it, are, are kind of unique. So thinking about what are these pathways by which inflammation in the outside of the body reaches the inside of the brain. Um, As we mentioned, there is this thing called the blood-brain barrier, which is this nifty membrane that basically keeps out a lot of what happens in the circulatory system from the brain. And that's in many ways a good thing because it keeps the brain safe from exposure to things that could be, as you said, toxic. Um, However, there's a lot of research, as you suggested earlier, that the blood-brain barrier is not as, uh, it's not as, as consistent in its permeability as we might have thought that the same kind of uh, links between those cells that make up the blood-brain barrier just like in the gut can become a bit more permeable a bit more leaky and so there are certain conditions especially things like tbi that appear to increase that permeability so why is that important because the brain is getting uh, a ton of access to blood. It requires a lot of blood, energy, uh, and oxygen to function at a high level. So if you have a breakdown in this blood-brain barrier, uh, you can get basically access to the bloodstream, and anything that is in the bloodstream can get into the brain, including things that either are inflammatory themselves or that are byproducts of inflammation throughout the rest of the body. And I'll just give two quick examples of that. So if you have inflammation in the gut, the gut immune cells might produce these what are called cytokines, which are basically the way that the immune system communicates these messenger molecules. Those cytokines, when they reach the brain and if they get through that blood-brain barrier, can activate the brain's own immune system, which is made up primarily of these cells called microglia, which are, again, the brain's own immune cells. So the brain has its own immune system. Um, So again, you have inflammation in the gut. It gets into the bloodstream by way of these cytokines. The cytokines permeate or get through the blood-brain barrier, and then that activates the brain's immune system to produce inflammation within the brain. You don't always have to have a breakdown in the blood-brain barrier. You can actually have uh, these cytokines or other immune markers that bind to the blood-brain barrier and either uh, activate various cascades or primarily get pulled across and can have effects there. Um, But the other way that we're learning that this can happen is by way of what are called the circumventricular organs. Basically, there are areas in the brain where there is a less thick or a more permeable region of the blood-brain barrier. And it works like that because the brain needs to be able to sample what's happening in the bloodstream. So it's thought now that in these regions, the things that are happening in the bloodstream might be able to get to the brain. And then the last kind of pathway, which is super interesting, is one that is probably very popular in these types of conversations on Clubhouse and other places, which is the vagus nerve. And I don't know if I've ever done a room in Clubhouse that's gone longer than an hour where the vagus nerve hasn't been brought up. But the idea here is that the vagus nerve is the longest of the cranial nerves. It runs from the brain down to depending on who you ask, um, the splenic flexure, which is part of the GI tract, but basically innervates, gets through the rest of the intestines. And most of the nerve fibers in this vagus nerve appear to be sending information not from the brain to the rest of the body, but the other way around, picking up data from the 
the intestines, for example, and sending that data to the brain. And so it's been shown that the vagus nerve has receptors for these immune markers such that if you have a, you know, an inflammatory response in the gut, if you have a bunch of kind of bacteria proliferating down there, if you have the immune cells getting all revved up and making these inflammatory markers, they can bind to this vagus nerve and basically convert that signal into something that goes up into the brain to uh, the hub in the brain of the vagus nerve and then kind of shoots that signal throughout the brain and thereby can influence behavior, but also can influence the brain's immune system. The last thing I'm going to say on this, because I know I've just kind of got into some some technical stuff there, is that it's really important to understand that you can have a kind of amplification of signals once things get into the brain. So I mentioned these microglial cells, these brain immune cells. These guys do an incredible job basically doing surveillance of the brain. They have this like lattice-like network, which is really incredible, where they kind of link arms almost and surveil the brain for threats, whether those are infections or even um, what are called damps or like basically um, these are signals from the body when our cells are damaged that tell our immune system they need to do something about it. So when the microglial cells pick up this type of data, which means something is going wrong, either an infection or damage to the cells, they convert into an activated state. They go from a resting state to an active pro-inflammatory state, and they themselves start producing these inflammatory markers within the brain. And again, this is actually a good thing. This is how you take out infections. It's how you take out um, damaged cells within the brain. The problem is that many diseases are now correlated with an overactivation, a sustained activation of these microglial cells towards this inflammatory type. And so what this does for me is putting all of this together, you create this pathway by which the information coming in from the outside of the body, I'd say, you know, definitely through the gut, but also what comes in through your senses can get converted into immune signals within the brain. And those immune signals within the brain, as we said at the beginning of this, are the same things that are now correlated with cognitive dysfunction. So both things like mild cognitive impairment and certainly things like Alzheimer's disease. Uh, you mentioned ALS. Parkinson's disease, um, as well as increasingly mood disorders, specifically things like uh, depression, but also schizophrenia, and in some cases, bipolar, as well as PTSD. So it's, it's really an, an elaborate pathway that gets you from what happens outside the body through the immune system into inflammation, and the outcome seems to be a lot of our, our brain-based diseases.